This week on Life and Faith. The way in which we think about how religion ought to interact with politics in particular, but public life generally, that of course is important. But in order to have that debate, it's best to take off the table this idea that religion is just going to be summarily dismissed from all things public. They'd done the job. Local authorities had it underhand. How do performing artists see the world? Because I'm nothing like a performing artist. This does seem to me like a very frightening situation. None of us are doctors and we're all doing fine. This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart and it's good to be back with you after a short break. And I'm really looking forward to today's episode and sharing a conversation I had with Michael Ware. Now, Michael Ware is the founder of Public Square Strategies. That's a consulting firm that helps businesses and not-for-profit organizations and foundations at the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. And he had some seriously interesting preparation for that role. Michael Ware worked in the Obama White House for three and a half years in the Office of Faith-Based and Neighbourhood Partnerships before heading out and leading religious outreach on President Obama's re-election campaign in 2012, and he then directed religious affairs for the President's second inaugural. Michael's book about this period of his life is Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. Now, that book was published in 2017, and I was keen to know how much of that hope Michael has retained in the years since. He's an important voice on the place of faith in public life, which makes him an ideal guest for CPX and Life and Faith. I spoke to him from his home near Washington. Now, look, I want to take you back for a moment to a point very early on in your time working at the White House. You're walking towards your first meeting at the Oval Office with a bunch of religious leaders. Now, you are, I think, 20 years old. Firstly, how did you come to be in that position? And secondly, can you describe the emotions of that moment? Yeah, sure. So so I came to be, at that moment, in the most practical sense because we'd won a presidential election. Well, Barack Obama won a presidential election, <laughs> and I was along for the ride. My first day of officially working at the White House, uh, the day of the National Prayer Breakfast, he had announced that morning that he would continue the White House faith-based initiative that his predecessor had started. Mm-hmm. And we were walking to the White House with a group of religious and other civic leaders who would form part of his first president's advisory council on faith-based neighborhood partnerships. And we were heading to the Oval for him to sign the executive order establishing that. And I'm, I'm, you know, walking towards the White House and I see the chief counsel for the Catholic bishops, a representative from a mainline Protestant church, a representative from the Southern Baptists, a megachurch pastor, a Hindu leader, um, I, I mean, just uh, America's religious diversity, not not only America's religious diversity, but what was important to me was, um, you know, the president signing that executive order was a recognition that faith actually 
had knowledge to bring to public discourse. And so it it felt like a validation and a vindication of of the work I had done up to that point and and why I'd supported him. And and, uh, yeah, it was a beautiful day. Let's just back up a bit here to discover how this 20-year-old came to be considered someone the new administration needed at the table when it came to faith issues. What were the steps that got Michael Ware to that place in his young life? In the most mystical sense, you know, um, God had moved in my life from a relatively young age to where I cared about civics and public life from a from a very young age. And then when I was about 15, I gave my life to Christ after reading Romans. Um, I, I was handed a tract of Romans, and instead of throwing it out, I read it and read it over again and over again. And uh, there were some other things happening in my life. Uh, my sister had become a Christian a few years earlier. I loved R&B music. And so I was hearing gospel messages through black music and predominantly black culture. But the inciting incident was I, I'd read Romans and all of a sudden, you know, all of the sort of pseudo intellectual excuses and reasons that a teenager has for why Christianity is a crutch. And, you know, for people who haven't really, you know, been through life, you know, like I had, it, you know, (laughs) all that stuff kind of, uh, you don't have to believe in Jesus after reading Romans, but you can no longer say after reading Romans that you, you haven't heard the gospel. You can no longer say that there's no there there. And so that led me on a path for a while. I thought, well, now I need to become a pastor. I need to go to seminary, become a pastor because I just want to do the most, you know, Christian thing. But thankfully I had a pastor in my life who said, you know, Michael, look around. There are Christians who aren't pastors. And I thought, oh, that's a it's an interesting observation. So that led me to DC. Uh, I went to George Washington University. And in my freshman year there, I was at a hotel and was walking through the lobby and walking through the lobby in the opposite direction was Senator Barack Obama. And I met him a few days before he would announce he was running for president. And 10 months later, I was in Iowa um, working for him as an intern on his first presidential campaign. And he won the primary, he won the election. And then I was asked to serve in his White House. Uh, and so in a practical sense, you know, it was just an amazing incredible ride that I could not have planned for, for sure. You worked on the campaign in 2008. Now, hope, of course, was famously the big theme of that, and it <laughs> captured many people around the world. I wonder what, as you look back on that, what elements of that hope, the sort of hope that was being spoken about there, do you think remained? What was diminished over the years that you were working in this area? Yeah, you know, I think the capacity for people to change and for situations to change and for things to be possible that you would not have thought if you had looked at the raw numbers, at sort of the raw data coming in, that is enduring to me. I do think upon reflection, I was young, I was 20 at the time, and I think that there was a sense that maybe we could get it right this time. Uh, Maybe this was an opportunity to correct everything that I thought had gone wrong up to that point. 
And I think that's not an entirely, you know, bad sort of impulse to have. I do think over the years I've become a little more comfortable with the sense of proximate justice with a greater recognition that even the best of intentions, even your best intentions often have hidden or unintended consequences that you could not have imagined that that even if you have the ends right, which I'm not sure we always do, the means can sometimes not be appropriate and therefore, you know, kind of can undermine the very ends you're seeking. And so, you know, I, I appreciate the sense of hope and looking forward that was so palpable in that moment. Sometimes when you talk about these high-minded things like hope, they become routinized and turned into a technique that robs what was originally so salient, you know, from its meaning. And so one of the clearest examples of this for me is the president would, he would, he would cite King and King of course was citing uh, a minister, Theodore Parker, by saying the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And there was a way in which Parker meant that a way in which King meant that, which I think is fairly consistent a way in which President Obama originally meant it. And then there's the way it's used by mid-level speechwriters and cabinet secretaries and down-the-ballot congressional candidates who are trying to attach themselves to the president, the way that journalists use it. And you go, gosh, we are now using a phrase that was uh, had all of this meaning bound up in America's original sin and just a general promise and outlook that Obama had it. And now, you know, you, you have it being written into his speeches, for instance, uh, hosting a state dinner of Nordic country leaders that t- together we're going to bend the arc of the moral universe. And he just, oh, I don't think that's what Parker King were, were talking about. What, what, what was it meant in the original? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> so, you, you know, you're working in this place, you've probably, many of us would be a bit starry-eyed at that, and you're finding yourself in proximity to the president and the processes that go on there. Was it exciting? Did you have the sense of the history of the place, or did that wear off pretty quickly and you were just, you know, into the routine? It never wore off. I will say, I do believe, I'm. Th- this is one of those areas in which my youth benefited me, in that a lot of people who end up working in the White House, it's the result of decades of plotting and sort of maneuvering. And I don't mean this to be as flippant as, as it will say. I was happy to be there, you know, like, and I had a sense that it wasn't the end of my career. It was the beginning. And I knew that there was a time horizon on it. Working at the White House is this, I've never thought about it this way or, or never said it this this way before, but it's this. Uh, at the same time, you have this perch of the scope of history, right? So, you know, you're walking by and like that's literally where, you know, uh, where Nixon resigned and President Lincoln roamed these halls considering the decisions that he would have to make in the middle of the Civil War. And this is where the British came, you know, and, uh, you know, all of of these things. Um, And at the same time, you know you have at most eight years 
the, the president has at most eight years. You have however many he decides to keep you on for. Uh, yes. And then the baton is handed off. And so it's just this incredible part of the sweep of history. I tell a story in my book about, you know, I was staffing some leaders uh, for the inauguration day parade and sort of everything had been done. I, I had a moment to myself where I was just able to watch sort of the the events unfold. And I, I looked to my left and Martin Luther King III, Martin Luther, uh, Dr. King's son, is standing right next to me. And, and you know, that's the moment that is both fleeting and spans history in such a profound way that how do you process that, you know? Yes. And so it was it was an incredible experience. At, at, at the same time, again, I just, you're working like, you know, 16 hour days and uh, I had not racked up a huge uh, savings, uh, unlike some colleagues uh, who go to the White House after they make money. I <laughs> I went to the White House not having much in savings, and so I'm I'm just trying to scrape by with rice and beans and, and that yeah. kind of thing, and and just trying to serve the best I could in the limited time time I had. So not always the glamorous life necessarily, no, but no, yeah, no, no. but that's very interesting. I did find that part of your book. Fabulously intriguing, actually. Now, you did well in your role. You obviously impressed the right people, and you ended up sometimes working on speeches for the president and slipping in references to C.S. Lewis and this sort of thing. I thought that was great. What was your proudest moment in that kind of role? Because there was a real need, wasn't there, for people to, who, who did understand the religious landscape in the U.S., which is a very complex space. Yeah. Um, so some of them are private in a way that I can't, you know, address them specifically. But, you know, I, I will say, you know, I had the opportunity to help prepare the president for very delicate meetings and moments where a lot of options were on the table. And some of them would have been less good than others. Right. And, uh, you know, feel like you're contributing not just to policy decisions, but to grace being shown to someone who overstepped their bounds or an appreciation for an alternative viewpoint being expressed as opposed to sort of a uh, Machiavellian sort of approach. So, uh, I mean, so many moments rolling through my head there that I can't share. What I will say in terms of like public accomplishments, three things. First, I'm really proud of the president's national prayer breakfast speeches for the first four years. I was there for the first four and I actually structure the, the middle of my book around those four speeches because they offer a pretty well-rounded presentation of the president's views of faith and public life. He gave a speech on sort of faith in government. That was his first speech, a speech on sort of how we treat each other in public. That was faith and civility. Uh, he gave a speech on his personal, what he prays for and sort of his personal faith. And then he gave a, a speech on faith and public policy views, sort of a broader faith and politics speech in 2012. And, and I, was, I was really proud to be able to play a role there. And then, you know, two policy things. Um, the president made permanent the adoption tax credit, which is something I'd worked on for a long time and that right. required a coalition of faith-based groups and parent groups and child advocates. And so I was really glad that we were able to get that done. And then finally, I worked with the president to raise America's profile on combating human trafficking. And a milestone with that was he gave a speech to the 
in September of 2012 that was the longest speech of any American president on slavery since Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and the speech was not just, I mean, it was a good speech, but but it wasn't just the speech. The speech led to hundreds of millions of dollars of additional U.S. commitments to combat uh, uh, human trafficking. And, and there were a whole bunch of bureaucratic things that strengthened the government's hand there. But, but I, was, I was really happy to be able to work with them on that. This is Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Michael Ware. Michael spent three and a half years working in the Obama White House in the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. He also led religious outreach on President Obama's re-election campaign in 2012. The place of faith in public is a controversial and important topic, and Michael is well-placed to comment on this, and it continues to be his main area of focus. Let's talk about faith in public, because this is a very controversial topic, always is, uh, it seems to me. But I was thinking about the role you've seen faith-based organizations in American life and the contribution they've made to social capital, because you do mention this in your book. You have a sense of this, right? Because it's not always widely understood. One of the things I really appreciated about working with uh, President Obama is that this is something that was, he did not grow up in a particularly religious household. Uh, people don't understand this. The president's time as a community organizer, he was funded by the Catholic Church for that organizing. And there are multiple sort of modes of community organizing. There's door to door. You could work through various kinds of the, the kind of organizing he did was through churches. Right. And so from a very personal level, uh, he, he understood the role that religious organizations play in the lives of communities in in most need. And so that's something that he took with him uh, to the White House. And I got to see that up close working for him and working in the faith-based office. Whether you're talking about disaster relief, where uh, it's often religious groups are on the ground first, before Red Cross, before anybody, before the government, Um, it's it's churches that are are first responders oftentimes. Uh, Whether you're talking about child care and education and the just infrastructure supporting children in this country, uh, whether you're talking about health. Um, and obviously there's a global sort of Christian contribution to even the idea of a hospital. Uh, but in America, uh, religious institutions account for a significant percentage of the hospital beds in this country. And so you just go down uh, areas of need and the contributions of not just Christian, but uh, of religiously motivated people and institutions is undeniable. And it's not like transferable. Like I think a lot of people tend to think if it wasn't getting done because in the name of religion, it would be done. Someone else would do it. Someone else would do it. And there, there are people who are not religious who are doing that. There are non-religious, you know, yeah. hospitals, whatever. But there's a there's a portion which would not be filled <laughs> if not for the contribution of faith. And that's just, you know, we've just talked about social service delivery. You know, um, when you talk about the legacy of of human rights or a liberal democracy, I mean, we could talk about the contributions of Christian resources uh, to so much of what we take for granted now in, in a way that's really important to know and be aware of. 
Now, that may well be true, but when it comes to politics and public life, plenty of people in Australia <laughs> and probably in the US would say, look, leave your faith at home. That's a private matter. Yeah. I want to ask you, why can't faith be just private? Yeah. So before I worked for him uh, in 2006, Barack Obama called this idea a practical absurdity. <laughs> and I, th I think he was he was right, particularly when you're talking about a representative forms of government. If there were no religious people in America, I would not want religious influence in American politics. To ask for a, a politics without religious influence in a nation where 70% plus believe in God, where 40% say religion guides their daily decision-making is not just absurd, it's, it's anti-democratic. You're actually trying to lay down a barrier to citizens actually being themselves in public life. Yeah. Now, I think the way in which we think about how religion ought to interact with politics in particular, but public life generally, that, of course, is important. But in order to have that debate, it's best to take off the table this idea that religion is just going to be summarily dismissed from all things public. But I think behind it is this sense that it's done a lot of harm. Right. People have, with these religious commitments have done a lot yeah. of harm to people. And a lot of us who are saying, well, we don't believe this stuff. Why should we have to have your kind of imposition? Yeah. We might have some sympathy with that, right? I absolutely understand that. Um, I think it is, though, a way of trying to win on an issue or set of issues without actually engaging in deliberation. It, it, it's a way It's a way of trying to disqualify people from even entering the public square so that you don't have to hash it out in yeah. discourse. And, and it's not a healthy way to proceed. I, I, I would say one thing that will help, uh, well, two things. One is a general public understanding of the ways in which religious ideas undergird so much of what we assume. Mm -hmm. And then for Christians, and let me just speak to Christians specifically, for Christians to engage in public issues with an eye towards the public good, not just sort of special interest claims or sort of self-representation. I think so much of why folks reject sort of religious influence is because it is so often presented as an imposition of power and sort of numbers and not anything that has the public's actual good in mind. Yeah. That's a problem for the good of democracy. It's also a problem for Christians who uh, ought to be motivated by love. And we ought to remember that love is to will the good of others. And so if, if we're advancing things in politics that we can't connect to the good of people, then that's not just a sort of political problem. We need to reflect on that as people of faith, as Christians. Now, you say early in your book about being filled with a, and I'll quote this, a hope that our politics of division could be overcome and that faith could be reimagined in America as part of the solution rather than part mm. of the problem. Now, I'm wondering whether in the years since, even since you know, you, you've you know, gone from that role, my guess is that those years haven't offered you a lot of hope in that. I mean, are you still, how are you still feeling okay about this? You still feel that there's a, 
a way that could happen? Oh, I do. Um, you know, I, I've been reading, uh, rereading Chesterton lately, and he has the Christianity has not been uh, tried and found wanting, but found hard and then not tried at all. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think um, I am convinced that Christianity has tremendous resources to bring to bear on some of the most pressing challenges that we face. There are social scientists that have described the particular kind of toxic polarization that has developed in modern American politics as political sectarianism. And they say that political sectarianism is basically supported by three pillars, a misplaced moralism, an aversion to others, and then the othering of people not like you. And I look at each of those pillars and see in them idolatries, which my faith and the Christian faith helped me to combat those directly. Now, one thing that's happened is that we've become uncomfortable with the idea that the resources of Christianity really do hold up in public, that they're not just sort of personal, private. Mm. Joy is something that is not just for your personal life, but something you can carry with you into public. A preferential option for the poor is not just something to consider in your personal finances, but something that should be on the minds of elected officials and those writing the budgets and those who vote for those who write the budgets. And then when we speak about like our political culture, I think especially in America, we have Christians who would never dream of saying things about their neighbors or tolerating various vulgarities in their local community or in their family. But when they head out into public, they think, well, politics is the world, and that's how the world operates. And so in order to operate in politics, all of these things I would not tolerate in my quote-unquote personal life are acceptable and just kind of the rules of the road in public. And part of what I'm, I'm saying is, uh, no, the human person actually doesn't work that way. <laughs> you can't be one kind of person in private and then another kind of person in public. You just are that person. And so as individuals and as a people, we have to decide what do we want our politics to be and what part of ourselves do we want to be reflected in, in our politics? Now, the issue of race continues to be a wound that hasn't healed in the U.S. And recent events don't suggest that the white evangelical church has been able to grapple with this issue effectively. There's a burden of history here, isn't there? Yes, there is a burden of history. Um, and it's one in which we are constantly running away from in a way that's actually you know, strikingly different from what we've seen transpire in Germany, for instance, in the wake of World War II and the Holocaust and what we've seen in other sort of contexts. Um, we as a, a nation and then white evangelicals, I think in particular, though it's really important to note that historically uh, the black church was not unified when it came to the civil rights movement. Um, and so race in America and racial injustice in America is like a monster that has put out tentacles which are hard to disentangle from any sort of 
community, or any facet of American life. And what we're seeing right now is an attempt to rip those tentacles back, and it's upsetting everything that was sort of in the ground. It's upsetting the pavement. I I have um, a driveway. um, Bamboo lines the driveway. The roots uh, don't just uh, go in one direction. They sort of go all over and they spread out sort of horizontally. I should have trimmed back the bamboo. I should have uprooted it. It was a pain. And so I just kind of left it. And now I'm I'm probably going to have to pay not just to get the bamboo get, uh, taken care of, but to pave a new get driveway. A new driveway right. And race is a lot like that in America. Now, church, again, this is a this is an area where, A, I think that there are some bright pockets. Even in what is sort of termed sort of white evangelicalism, I think that there are pockets of people doing important work. And then I'd also say the language and the resources that have helped this country make its most important progress on this front have been religious resources. And I actually don't think that that is going to change in the short to medium term. I I think that the Christian resources of repentance and forgiveness and repair and justice and Imago Dei, those are resources that, frankly, we can't afford to do without. What it will require is a Christian confidence that those resources are relevant. It will require a real humility from folks who are used to always be the ones setting the terms of conversations and debates to not feel like that is always their responsibility. But I tend to look at what we're going through right now as a nation as a tilling of the ground from which new things can be born. And that's what I'll be working toward. Now, Michael, you're big on the idea of Christians being part of public life in a manner that serves the common good. That's a big theme of your work. Now, I wonder what would be the shape of that service broadly, to the extent that everyone would think it's good news that the Christians are here at the table. Great question. So a few things. One is Christians, they, they aren't the only ones who have the ability to do this, but because our security and our identity can be and is supposed to be so rooted in the gospel and in the life that Jesus offers. What it means is that we can go to politics and we go to public life in a way that is free of the search for identity and security that so defines so much of what we see in our broader political discourse today. And what it means is that Christians are, in some ways, uniquely resourced to be other-centered in our politics, to see public life as a forum, not the only forum, but an essential forum for loving our neighbor. And it doesn't mean that we'll agree all the time. Either, A, it doesn't mean that Christians will agree with other Christians all of the time. It also doesn't mean that the general public will agree with Christians all the time. But if Christians got into the habit of viewing their actions in public as uh, not devoid of self-interest, I don't don't think we need to suggest that, but as other-centered, if that was the kind of language that we used, if that actually informed what we prioritized, then I think we'd be in a much healthier place. And and then, you know, I just say um, there is a... um, 
an anxiety to our public discourse right now where Christians can provide real relief, which is not to, down, you know, sometimes folks hear this and go, yeah, the way to downplay the anxiety is to sort of suggest that none of this really matters. You know, we're just passing through or, or whatever. That, that's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about sort of a gentleness, a sort of lack of being frantic. That would be a great salve in a media and political environment, which is constantly manipulating people to get the reactions that will benefit those who are pressing the buttons. And, and Christians can provide something of a safe harbor from that. One last one. House of Cards or West Wing? <laughs> These are popular television programs. One, very idealistic. The other, really Machiavellian and dark. Where are we sitting, Michael, for you? Yeah, uh, so I've seen both of them. Uh, neither are two. There, there's a show, Madam Secretary. Yep. And I don't know if y'all have that. Madam Secretary is is the most accurate to me of the <laughs> the ways that uh, most reflective of real life. Uh, as much as I enjoyed West Wing, uh, people aren't that funny uh, who work in government. <laughs> And they, they don't talk as fast. Uh, so, but Madam Secretary is a, is a pretty good one. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. A huge thank you today to Michael Ware. You can check out what he's up to these days at Public Square Strategies. And his book, Reclaiming Hope. Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America comes highly recommended. Please do share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it and leave us a rating or review. We'd love to get some of your feedback. Next week. I don't like work-life balance. I think that it implies that work is a different thing from life. And I think that if we're doing work right, it's a part of life. Balance is important though. Balance in all things is a great idea and making sure that everything we do is sustainable.